Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. This is episode three of the story of mutiny and murder aboard the Dove Brigantine. If you haven't already done so, I recommend you pause here and go back and listen to the first two episodes before listening to this, the final chapter. By the end of the last episode, Benjamin Hawes, captain of the merchant ship the Dove Brigantine, lay dead in his cabin, murdered by one of his own sailors, Edward Johnson. Almost every one of the Dove's crew had agreed to the mutinous plan to overthrow Captain Hawes and steal his ship and its precious cargo for themselves. Everyone but one. As the mutineers began to heave up the anchor, the cabin boy, Richard Walker, discovered his captain's body. After raising the alarm, Walker himself only narrowly escaped Edward Johnson's bloody knife by leaping over the side of the ship and splashing his way through the dark night to an Italian ship nearby, outswimming Johnson and fellow mutineer Pierce Butler who had jumped into one of the Dove's boats and rowed after him. Back on the Dove, the mutineers knew that letting Walker escape was a disastrous mistake. When he returned to the ship, Johnson was in a fearsome, violent rage. Oh, you treacherous dogs, he screamed. God damn you! Could not you keep that boy aboard when I had done the work of the great man and killed him myself? Johnson then drew out a knife and swore he would kill himself, because his hands had missed the boy. He was only prevented from suicide by William O'Mara, who stepped in and physically restrained the man. Perhaps Johnson was genuinely attempting suicide, out of despair. He had, after all, just committed the ultimate sin of murder. It would seem all for nothing. Or perhaps... He wanted to spare himself the now inevitable noose, because the mutineers must have realised that with Walker escaped, the cards were now stacked heavily against them. 
their only chance of avoiding arrest and trial on the capital charges of murder and piracy was to make sail and slip out onto the open sea as quickly as possible. There, the speed and manoeuvrability of the brigantine may just give them a fighting chance of evading capture by the ships that would now surely pursue them. That was why brigantines were so beloved by pirates. Loath to waste any more precious time slowly hauling the heavy anchor in, the newly self-appointed pirate captain, Nicholas Williams, seized a hatchet and cut through the anchor cable himself. He then commanded that the crew set sail. They were heading out to sea. Yet there was still little wind. The dove was moving, but only at an agonising snail's pace. Meanwhile, after less than a half-hour respite on board the Italian ship, Walker was transferred to a British merchantman, the Levant. The Levant's commander, a Captain Floyd, ordered an immediate pursuit of the Dove. Within a short time, the Levant and several other ships anchored in Livorno's harbour had mustered and dispatched five boats packed with armed men. It was not a long chase. In the still night air, oars outpaced sails. The boats soon caught up with the brigantine as it had barely crawled clear of the harbour. Leading the charge was John Lagarde, chief mate of the Levant. He clambered aboard the Dove in time to see mutineer John O'Brien attempt an escape by jumping overboard. O'Brien had earlier that same day toyed with the idea of swimming back to shore when he realised how fearsome Edward Johnson could be. He would have done well to heed his instincts. O'Brien was fished out of the water and arrested. Meekly arrested, too, were Williams, Nicholas Wolfe, and a Dutch crewman called Derrick, who were all found on deck, bickering amongst each other. The recriminations for the dismal failure of their plan to turn pirate were already beginning. Lagarde cut across this noisy griping and accosted Williams. Damn you! What have you done with the captain? he demanded. Williams was silent for some moments before admitting, he's a dead man, and not a man for this world. Descending down to the captain's cabin, Lagarde found the body of Benjamin Hawes still lying on the floor, his hand over his wound. Someone had taken the time to drape a sheet over the corpse. Even for an age when death was more familiar, this was a gruesome sight, best covered over. Otherwise, all was in disarray. The captain's desk had been broken open, and his papers were lying scattered all about the cabin. While Lagarde inspected the scene of the murder, a search was conducted throughout the ship to find the final four missing mutineers, including the murderer, Edward Johnson. The four men were soon found, hiding beneath some raw buffalo hides in the forescuttle, a small, uncomfortable hole beneath a hatchway. The problem with trying to hide on a ship is that your seekers know that no matter how well you conceal yourself, you ultimately have nowhere to run. With Johnson hauled up on deck, Williams threw in the towel and decided to come clean. Don't deny it, he said to Johnson. You are the man that killed the captain, and I cut the cable. As Lagarde would later recount, Williams confessed to his captors that the captain had always been very good and that he believed the devil was in him and he expected nothing but to die, demonstrating a humanity that was so decidedly absent from the ruthless actions of Williams, Johnson and their co-conspirators 
Lagarde arranged for Williams to be given a Bible and bid him make good use of it. With the dove reclaimed and her crew arrested, Richard Walker returned to the ship where, barely hours earlier, he had almost lost his life. A surgeon also came on board, and Walker assisted him in examining the body of his dead captain. Hawes transpired to have two wounds, a small wound to his ribs and a larger wound, three inches and three-quarters long, athwart his breast. This was measured, rather gruesomely and crudely, by Walker placing his hand inside the wound. The cut, Walker reported, went quite through his back and was an inch and a half wide there. A savage and deep attack, then. At approximately one thirty in the morning, on the 8th of September, 1736, around three hours after Hawes was killed, the dove was brought back into Livorno Harbour, escorted by the boats who had recaptured her. The accused men were distributed in twos aboard different ships to prevent them from conspiring together. Walker, albeit he had sounded the alarm, was still treated with a modicum of suspicion and was placed with Nicholas Wolfe aboard the navy ship the Dolphin. After being held for a short time in isolation, the accused were transferred onto the Royal Navy ship HMS Torrington and transported back to England to face trial. Derrick died at some point en route and on arrival, the surviving men, including Richard Walker, were taken to London and imprisoned in the Marshalsea. The Marshalsea prison is most famous now in cultural memory as a debtor's prison, immortalised by Charles Dickens in his novel Little Dorrit. However, since medieval times, the Marshalsea has also been the prison of the Court of the Admiralty, the destination for those accused of crimes at sea, including piracy. The Marshalsea by this time had earned the sobriquet the worst prison in the country, a title for which there was some pretty stiff competition in the 18th century. The prison was run for private profit by its marshals, who siphoned off fees from the prisoners and charitable donations, and effectively held the prisoners at their mercy. In 1718, twenty years before the Dove crew were incarcerated, the Marshalsea was described in an anonymous rhyme as an earthly hell. A parliamentary committee, appointed ten years later to investigate the prison conditions, found that prisoners were beaten, tortured, and left locked up alongside deceased fellow inmates. Prisoners were often cramped together in spaces so small they could not lie down. Many starved to death, and in these stifling conditions, as many as eight to ten prisoners died a day during hot weather. It would have been an uncomfortable place, to put it extremely mildly, for the Dove's crew to await their fate and dwell on their deeds. When they were finally released from the Marshalsea, it was merely to be moved to another prison, which lay adjacent to the Old Bailey Courthouse. Newgate. Overcrowded and unsanitary, Newgate Prison would hardly have been thought an improvement in their accommodation. But they did not reside there long. We'll get back to the story of Mutiny on the Dove shortly. Now, a quick interval for me to say thank you very much for listening to this episode. Your support is much appreciated. To find out more about this podcast, 
and subscribe for future episodes, you can go to shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. That's shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. Or find and follow Archive Sleuth on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Links to all these sites are in the show notes. That's enough from me. Now just a short commercial, then back to the story. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. On the 24th of February, 1737, six men appeared at a Court of the Admiralty trial at the Old Bailey, accused of murder Edward Johnson, Nicholas Williams, Lawrence Sennett, Nicholas Wolfe, Pierce Butler, and John O'Brien. It is the transcript record of this trial that has provided so much of the remarkable detail that survives of this case. Specifically, Johnson was charged with wielding a knife made of iron and steel in his right hand and striking and stabbing Benjamin Hawes on the left part of the breast, feloniously, willfully and of malice aforethought. 
the remaining five prisoners were accused of aiding, abetting, assisting and comforting Johnson in his murderous crime. For the presiding Admiralty judge, this case had wider significance than ensuring justice for the death of one man, as bad as murder in itself is. By assaulting a ship's lawfully appointed captain, Johnson and his fellows had attacked the entire social system which underpinned the captain's authority. The system, which ensured that most crews on most of Britain's ships travelling to ever more distant corners of the globe continued to be deferential to the authority of their officers, the system which kept goods and wealth flowing into the country. All six men pleaded not guilty, but were unable to call any witnesses to their defence. The prosecution, on the other hand, called to the stand not one, but two eyewitnesses, who recalled events with impeccable detail. The cabin boy, Richard Walker, but also none other than the mutineer, William O'Mara. Wiley O'Mara had struck a deal and agreed to testify against his one-time fellow conspirators in exchange for a full pardon. This is known as turning King's evidence and must have been a bitter twist for Williams and the other defendants. Particularly as O'Mara proved to have an excellent memory and in the witness stand gave an extensive account of the days of plotting that led up to the mutinous night. He was, though, cleverly evasive when it came to describing his own actions on the actual night of the murder. O'Mara had been sleeping in the mate's cabin, immediately adjacent to the captain's cabin, when Hawes was killed. O'Mara claimed to have heard Hawes scream, and even heard a rush of blood. But by his own account, after hearing these disturbing noises, he decided not to budge from the mate's cabin. Having, he claimed, not ventured upon deck, he could not personally corroborate the evidence Walker gave of the desperate fight that occurred between Walker and Johnson, except by interpreting the muffled noises he could hear through the ceiling. Whether this is true or not remains unknown, but it wouldn't be beyond what we do know of Amara to believe he gave enough firm evidence at court to be trusted and then bent the truth to protect his own name. O'Mara was nothing if not a veteran survivor. You may recall from episode one that O'Mara had only boarded the dove to escape the wrath of his former captain, Sir Mark Forrester, who had sworn to hang O'Mara for slandering his name. John Lagarde, who discovered O'Mara cowering next to Johnson in the scuttle, and who also gave testimony at the Old Bailey trial, described O'Mara as highly argumentative. When hauled up on deck, Quick-thinking O'Mara had claimed he was the King of Spain's subject as a means of evading arrest, and he was only made to be quiet when Lagarde broke a cutlass about his shoulders. It is hardly surprising, then, that in his witness testimony, this escapologist would not place himself at the centre of the murderous manhunt for Richard Walker. O'Mara's recollections, for all their possible gaps, as well as Richard Walker's testimony, were damning other than Senate claiming that it was not he or Williams, but the now conveniently deceased Derrick, who had wanted to haul up the anchor after Hawes died, the six men on trial had nothing to say in their defence. Trials were short in the 18th century, and justice moved swiftly. Edward Johnson and Nicholas Williams were that day found guilty of murder. 
Although Johnson had actually wielded the knife, Williams was evidently regarded as equally culpable for having been the leader of the mutiny. Senate, Wolfe, Butler and O'Brien were acquitted of murder. However, Lawrence Senate, along with the already condemned Johnson and Williams, were indicted a second time for feloniously and piratically endeavouring to make and causing to be made a revolt in the dove, and running away with her. All three men were found guilty of piracy. Sennett was likely singled out for being Williams's right-hand man. He was the first person Williams had approached with his plan to mutiny, and he had actively helped Williams bring in other members of the crew. The acquittal of the remaining men suggests there was perhaps more nuance and mercy in the British 18th century justice system than is often assumed. It was no secret that Butler and O'Brien had signed the original Articles of Mutiny, and that Wolfe, Butler and O'Brien had all expressed support for Johnson when he killed the captain. They blamed him only for not holding his hand until they were out at sea, safely out of sight of land and other ships. So a mercy it was that these three were spared the noose, and perhaps a degree of pragmatism. In this age of booming sea trade and regular naval warfare, Britain needed all the experienced sailors she could get. Perhaps it would have been considered wasteful to string up the entire crew, especially so as shipboard mutiny in the early 18th century was not all that rare. Records indicate there was an average of one mutiny a year aboard British merchant vessels throughout the first half of the century, with roughly half of these resulting in the crew seizing control of the ships. Thanks in part to the fame of the later Mutiny on the Bounty, it is natural to assume that mutiny could often be a just attempt by a maltreated crew to overthrow a tyrannical captain. In fact, some admiralty court trials of the time sympathised with the grievances of the crew if it found evidence that a ship's captain had been excessively brutal. But there is no evidence that Captain Benjamin Hawes was a despot towards his own men, and so needed to be overthrown. Other than Walker, the crew were all newly arrived on the ship, and had spent all or most of their service to Hawes at anchor, coming and going between the shore and ship. Williams himself claimed the captain was a good man, and none of the accused sought to defend their actions on the grounds of maltreatment. This was not a mutiny in the names of rights or justice. It was a cold-blooded, cruel, yet shambolic mutiny attempt, the murder of a man in his sleep for the sake of profit. Whether or not we can regard Benjamin Hawes as an innocent is another question entirely. As I talked about in the first episode of the story, it is possible that the dove's cargo was not confined to tobacco and sugar alone. The dove was a ship registered to Bristol and owned by a prolific slave trader, so it is possible that the dove herself was used to transport enslaved humans from Africa to the plantations in the Americas. As I mentioned in the first episode, while some clues in the records suggest the dove may have been a slave ship, I could not find definitive proof of this. But we must bear in mind the possibility that Benjamin Hawes and his cabin boy Richard Walker were personally involved in shackling, transporting, torturing and selling fellow human beings.
If this was so, there is no scrap of evidence to suggest that the mutineers justified the murder of Hawes on the basis that he was guilty of personal involvement in the barbaric slave trade. Instead, it is more likely they reconciled themselves to murder on the basis that any attempt to take over the ship would by law be treated as an act of piracy, which was in itself a capital offence. As they would be hanged for pirates if caught, the thinking may have been they may as well commit another capital offence, murder, to dispose of their key witness to piracy, and so perhaps save themselves from capture and conviction. But it was a pathetically poorly executed plan. It was barely a plan at all. The mutineers had not agreed on what to do with the captain, or where to take the ship once seized, and seemed to lack any foresight to prepare for the potential obstacles in their path. Why attempt a mutiny so close to the shore, within mere hundreds of yards of other ships? Why attempt to make away with the ship when there was barely a wind to fill the sails? Why had none of them thought in advance about securing the cabin boy? We live in a time when the popular perception of 18th century pirates is dominated by the legacy of Robert Louis Stevenson and over 100 years of Hollywood glamorization. Pirates are meant to be fun, aspirational, swashbuckling figures with a penchant for gold and golden sands. But there is nothing romantic about this grubby little murder orchestrated by an incompetent band of opportunists. On Monday, the 14th of March, 1737, the three condemned men, Edward Johnson, Nicholas Williams and Lawrence Sennett, were taken from Newgate and carried in carts through the streets of London to the unimaginatively named Execution Dock in Wapping on the banks of the Thames. It is a distance of around two miles, and the condemned men were paraded through the streets with a silver oar and naval badge carried before them, representing the authority of the Admiralty. They were hanged at execution dock, and their bodies were then hung out in chains. This was the punishment reserved for notorious pirates. To be hanged off a low gallows on the banks of the Thames until three tides had washed over the bodies, and then to be gibbeted and displayed in chains along the river as a warning to other would-be pirates. It was a gruesome practice that belies the image of politeness and refinement we have today of Georgian society. Anyone sailing up the Thames in the 18th century would have been greeted by the smell and sight of a rotting row of corpses. But what of the survivors? First, the ship. As mentioned in the first episode of this story, records for merchant vessels are patchy before the late 1740s so we cannot follow the ship's later career with certainty. But a brigantine called the Dove was shipwrecked off the southern coast of Scotland in 1756. Everyone on board was saved, but the ship was lost. This may well not have been the Dove of this story, but if it was, it strikes me as a suitably ignominious end. And what of the people? William O'Mara and the acquitted O'Brien, Butler and Wolfe melt into the mists of history. As for Richard Walker, there is a record of someone of that name serving on the Royal Navy ship HMS Strafford 
1749. Could it be the same man? Perhaps. Walker and Richard are both fairly common names, so it is not a certainty. But given that Walker had already spent a decade at sea before the murder, the Navy would not be an unusual place for him to wash up in, whether by choice or the strong arm of the press gang. In 1749, the long, complicated and far-flung wars of the Austrian succession had just drawn to a close. HMS Chafford played an active part in the naval operations in the West Indies, fighting against the Spanish. If the Richard Walker aboard the Strafford is the cabin boy from the Dove, and if he had indeed lived through the fighting and diseases that were so rife in the Caribbean, then perhaps he, like his fellow trial witness William O'Mara, had, from all the people in this tale, the most unusual knack for survival. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. I'll be back with a new story from the archives on Thursday the 2nd of June. This podcast can only survive and thrive with your support. If you enjoy listening to Archive Sleuth, please do tell your friends and family about the show, or even share links to your favourite episodes on social media. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. This episode was based on the proceedings of the Old Bailey from the 24th of February, 1737, available to read on the Old Bailey online. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.